0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Salt Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of Salt, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. Salt Talks are a digital interview series with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And our goal on these Salt Talks, the same as our goal at our Salt Conferences, which are two uh, guests today, uh, one the moderator and also our interviewee, attended our most recent SALT conference in Abu Dhabi in 2019, and we had a, a great pleasure getting to know them there. But our goal there and our goal in these SALT Talks is to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts, as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. And we're very excited today, as I mentioned, to welcome Saleh Rome to SALT Talks, moderated by our great friend, uh, Nor Suede. Uh, they're both in Dubai right now. Uh, but Saleh serves as the managing partner at SoftBank Investment Advisors and as a member of its investment committee. Prior to joining SoftBank, Saleh was a managing director at Goldman Sachs as head of securities for the Middle East and North Africa region. Previously, he spent 17 years at Deutsche Bank, notably as head of corporate coverage for Asia and head of Central Europe, Middle East and Africa regions for the CIB divisions. He began his banking career in 1989 at BNP Paribas Uh, Saleh serves on the boards of SoftBank Investment Advisors and Georgetown University's McDonough School of Business. He previously served on the boards of Auto One and Abraj Capital and Deutsche Bank Saudi Arabia. We're very grateful Saleh has accomplished so much in his uh, decorated career that he was able to condense his bio into a nice brief introduction for us. But uh, hosting today's talk, as I mentioned, is Noor Suede. She's a partner at Global Ventures, which is a venture capital firm based in Dubai. And and like I mentioned, we had the pleasure of getting to know Noor at our Salt Abu Dhabi conference in 2019. She appeared on a panel a few months ago regarding health tech uh, that she's investing heavily in, in the the MENA region and beyond. So we're very excited to have her as a moderator here today. But uh, without any further ado, I'm going to turn it over to Noor uh, to conduct the interview.
1: Thank you, John, for the kind intros. Um, And welcome, Saleh. It's good to have you here.
2: Yeah, thank you for having me. Good to see you too. How time flies! Um,
1: it does. It does. It's been over a year since we were on that panel together in Abu Dhabi, um, and you know, a year of such significant change uh, around the world. I don't think the world has ever gone through such fluctuation all at the same time. Um, so maybe we start there. Over the last year, and what seemed so obvious at the beginning of 2020, and what seemed so uncertain at the beginning of 2020. Um, you know, what kind of impact has this last year had on your business? Um, and how have you seen that really affect the bottom line of some of the companies or the strategy of the firm?
2: Mm. Yeah, well, first, Noor, I think it's worth, you know, just talking about this crisis. And it's I think it's fair to, to say that this crisis is probably the biggest crisis that we've all faced since, you know, World War II. And and what's interesting about it is, had we not had all the technological advances that we're, we have today, I think the impact of this crisis would have been far worse, right? Um, on, on multiple facets. Um, if you think of the speed with which we've come up with the vaccine, it's only through the advent in computational biology and genomics that we've been able to develop those. The fact that we're communicating together like this, I think, is, is huge as well, right? And we wouldn't have been able to do this, you know, as recently as three, four, five years ago. So I think the first thing to say is that this is a huge crisis, but tech has actually helped us overcome this crisis.
1: And, and so as you think through that, and, and I would agree completely, and I think even the ability to work from home is something that 10 years ago would not have would not have presented itself as an opportunity to continue um, being productive in the workforce through technology. As you think through kind of the lessons learned or the impact of this Mm -hmm. crisis, how has that impacted the way that you think about your business um, and the way that SoftBank either operates or thinks about different areas to invest in or ways of investing?
2: Mm -hmm. Well, the first lesson I think um, in all this is that you can never predict crises. Right. You can never, that's one thing I learned throughout my career, having been being through a few myself, but you can't predict crises, but you can certainly prepare for them. And, mm-hmm. and in that regard, Noor, um, I think in the Vision Fund, we were inherently prepared because our focus had been on day one on tech. And we were always looking for cutting edge companies um, and in general, the dominant player in each of the sectors that we invested in. So inherently, we were prepared for this crisis. But certainly, when this this hit us, it did surprise us. Um, But again, a couple of the principles that we built our business on, for example, ensuring that we were a long-term partner to our portfolio companies, ensuring that we had deep pockets to be able to support the companies that deserved it. We also had an operating group that was 30, 40 strong uh, that helped our companies quickly adapt and, and whether the first phase of the crisis. Um, so, and, and as in any crisis nor, you know, one of the first line of defense is to kind of preserve cash and to kind of batten down the hatches. Um, our investing teams obviously help steer the boards of our companies. We don't take uh, majority stakes. We influence through the boards. We influence through our relationship with, our, with the CEO and the founder. So, so that's something we were able to do quite quickly. And, and what we focused on was obviously, to the extent that many of these were consumer-facing companies, um, improving the interface, the consumer experience, the, customer, the user experience by, by enhancing the front end of a lot of these companies, being able to reach out to these to the people, and then um, improving the back end, right? So, so ensuring better cash flow management, um, managing capex um helping them manage their supply chain we got which got disrupted in the first phase of the crisis, all of that was made possible by you know teams of people that we already had in place. So had the crisis hit kind of two years earlier, it would have been a very different story, but for the most part um you know we were able to 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 I don't want to use the word benefit, but almost kind of work with the crisis uh, and work with our companies to help survive the first phase and and I think to a large extent, um our, our central thesis nor our central thesis that tech is the great enabler has been kind of proven through throughout this crisis
1: and i was about to say that it's almost that that your thesis has come to fruition even faster than than you anticipated when investing out of fund 1 Um, and so, so that's really on the portfolio and fund one and what you've done to support that portfolio and that the, the, how that's gone. What about fund two? So now as you look at fund two, um, and I I recognize you're, you're raising that and you're in the market with that. What's different? What are you seeing today? And what does that look like? Is it more of the same or is there an inherent shift towards certain industries and verticals?
2: Yeah, I (laughs) yeah. Before we talk about fund two, I think it's important to kind of maybe look back on kind of the evolution of, of fund one, right? Um, and and our, we, we have a four-year kind of life. We were set up four years ago. And from the outset, nor we had our fair share of, of doubters and naysayers, right? Um, yeah. I was involved from the get-go. And I remember at the beginning of our fund, there were people that were saying that, you know, there's no way that you could even put together a $100 billion fund. Right, And then once we had it put together, there were people that said, well, you'll never be able to deploy 100 billion. And then once we deployed that, people said, you'll never be able to generate you know, uh, a return on your capital. And I think each step of the way, I think we've kind of proven that this is possible. And this, this is possible just because we're at the advent or the confluence of all the technological changes that are taking place, which really allows us to, to, to to play a big role in this evolution. NASA likes to call it the AI revolution. You know, it kind of encapsulates all of the changes and all of the exciting things that are happening in the tech space across all of different disciplines and sectors. But essentially, you know, that was our central thesis. And, and if you take fund one, and I'll talk about fund two in a second, but if you take fund, fund one, you know, we've deployed close to 90 billion. Um, and from that 90 billion, we have gains of, of over 22 billion. We've distributed 15 billion already to our LPs. Um, and we have a portfolio of you know, roughly uh, 90 odd companies, right? Um, and, and from that portfolio that we invested in, we've already generated roughly 13, 14 IPOs, right? So, so I think in, even in vision fund one, we've, we've seen some validation of our core thesis and our core modus operandi. And that's why when we finished deploying the capital in Vision Fund One, we decided to switch to Vision Fund Two. Um, The difference being that Vision Fund Two for now has only SoftBank Group Capital in it. And and to come back to your question, the the key difference is is that we're being much more granular in the types of investments that we're making. Vision Fund One made some very large investments in some sectors. So for example, in ride sharing um, and others, we made some very big investments. In in the case of Vision Fund 2, we're making smaller investments um, into companies, um, which allows us to also participate in earlier stage companies as well, right? So Vision Fund 1 was almost exclusively focused on 100 to $200 million investments as a minimum into kind of late stage growth companies. Yeah. Vision Fund 2 is in, is in significantly um, smaller companies. And case in point, so we've made 40 investments, 40 investments already in Vision Fund 2.
1: And what's the average size of those investments? And why have you gone earlier?
2: Um, there is, uh, average size, we look, we've deployed uh, close to like five, five, five six billion dollars. Right, So you can do your math there, and, and, and we have some outsized investments, but we've made mm-hmm. investments to the tune of 20, 30, even 50, you know, $50 million dollars, mm-hmm. right? I think that's a reflection of the fact that clearly there's a lot more capital at work now, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, in the past, we would lead the rounds. Now we're participating on the cap table alongside um, you know, our, our, our partners, um, and we're not looking to lead rounds as much as we were before. So, so, I think that's a reflection of the fact that there's a lot more capital out there, um, but but there, there's no shortage of opportunities. We're certainly seeing plenty of them.
1: And where are you seeing those? Which industries? I mean, we can talk a little bit about digital health, which I think is is one that most people are excited about. Um, is that is that one that you're focused on? Is that one that you like? And what others have kind of become more focus areas of focus for you at this point in time?
0: Yeah,
2: yeah. W- w- uh, um, we focus more on on specific sectors that are particularly relevant um to you know the, the 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 crisis that we're currently going through um so if you look at things like ed tech you know e-commerce mm-hmm. um, entertainment um i think people's behavior have changed fundamentally um mm-hmm. in this crisis if you look at the the rate at which for example people adopted um you know uh, e-commerce right got shifted from Offline to online, right? Uh, in, in the last six months, we've made up so much ground that would have otherwise taken us years. I think so. The the, the key theme is around the companies that are doing particularly well in this period right now, um, and certainly, you know, um, health tech and, and as I mentioned, ed tech, uh, e commerce, and others are, are areas of focus for us.
1: So when you think about those areas, I mean, let's talk maybe a little bit about digital health. So when we think about digital health and we are very much investors across Middle East and Africa, we recognize that there, you know, per thousand people, we have 1.3 doctors, whereas Europe potentially has 4.8. Right. And so we think of this as an area where we could leapfrog and there could be innovation um, and really think about healthcare care inclusion the same way people thought about financial inclusion 10 years ago. Right. Um, and even in ed tech the region across Middle East Africa has 150 million children out of school pre-COVID. So 50% of the world's out of school children actually reside in Middle East and Africa. And so these are sectors that I think speak very loudly in the region and that not not as an incremental change, it's exponential change, if technologies could be built and scaled here. Do you think about that at all? So do you, when you take a look at the Middle East and Africa, do you think that these are sectors that potentially could have opportunities arising in the region? Um, or do you think that this region is simply for the adoption of technologies coming in? Um, where is your head on where can innovation arise? Is it really global? Does the region perhaps have an advantage in sectors that are more dire um, or, or not really?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think the way I look at, it- Tech in a very simplistic manner is to, is to view it as the, as the ability to democratize products and services to a broader population. So you're absolutely right, Noor. You know, um, uh, when it comes to being able to deliver content or product or whatever it is, um, doing it online is much more effective than doing it offline, right? And we are all aware, for example, if you take Africa, for example, of the problems that Africa has in terms of logistics, Um, the geographic distances, et cetera, um, as well as uh, the the income levels. But I think if you have an ability to deliver products and services online, the way you've described it, you know, through whether it's education, uh, whether it's uh, healthcare, um, certainly there's a lot to be done uh, in the region. um, And we've started to see that. I think for vision fund, um, we haven't been as active in the region well certainly for vision fund one because as i mentioned our, our our ticket size our investment size was was much bigger than what the region could absorb but increasingly for vision fund two I know we think that the region um, will, will, will present itself with opportunities for us but certainly you know uh, we've seen incredible entrepreneurs um, and and founders in the region trying to address some fundamental problem that the, the region has um, and we're keeping a close eye on those but the, the 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 bulk of our activities in the region the middle east um, to be specific nor has been more focused on helping our portfolio companies yeah. um, grow their business into the region Right. So and, so can
1: you give can you give some examples of that? So which portfolio companies or which industries and and, and why is the region important to them? I think occasionally within the region yeah. you know we, we question on is it even an interesting market to founders? Um mm-hmm. and why could it be an interesting market to founders?
2: Yeah. Well, for one, you know, you've got uh, a very young segment of the population that's digitally connected. Uh we all know that. Um, so, so I think the market is definitely there to be able to connect with consumers for different types of products and services. Um, what excites me is is the fact that the region has got some very well established champions, some very large, well established regional, even global companies um, that are based in the region with with very significant activities. You know, you take companies like Adnoc, like Etisalat. Um, you take Aramco, uh, Sabic, just to name a few. Um, these are all companies that are you know, effectively global multinationals. They're not regional companies, they're not domestic companies, right? Um, and in the last 10, 20 years, we've we've seen them kind of evolve into very large companies. And all of those companies are trying to, to digitize and adopt technology to improve the way they operate, right? So a lot of our companies become relevant for them. So we have um, robotics companies, we have automation companies, we have uh, industry data companies, like OSIsoft, for example, that's done really well in the region, helping companies like Aramco, um, the telcos in the region improve um, the way they can process information and and their productivity. Uh, We have another company called Automation um, Anywhere, and and that's working with the public sector companies, the private sector companies to, to drive efficiencies and lower costs via automation, right? Automating kind of the mid-office and the back office functions. That's a big theme. Um and we have other companies such as um SenseTime, that's 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 based on facial recognition, working with local companies as well. Um we have we have other companies in 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 fintech, that's working to improve supply chain finance, right? So all of these companies I mentioned are multinationals with with receivables with supply chains. There's there's some very efficient ways to to fund those rather than going through the commercial bank route, right? So these are all examples of of, of situations where we're helping the, the the region kind of adapt and change and improve. Um, with technology
1: and so you then are are leveraging your partnerships and and your presence in the region to bring these companies in and that's a Mm -hmm. great win-win because it means that the region really accelerates their technology adoption um, and these companies get access to new markets so what new partnerships are you forming here
2: yeah so uh, so our aim is to to create partnerships and and kind of Help the local tech ecosystem, and we work with, um, you know, institutions like, of course, the PIF and Mubadala. Those are our primary institutions we work with. Uh, but we also work with Adio, right? Hub71. Um, we work with different ministries in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia to 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 help set up our companies to create an ecosystem of sorts by bringing our companies to the region. Right. So one thing we do, for example, is. We 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 facilitate the entry into the region, and because of our network and because of all these institutions that have set up to help um, absorb these companies and help them get set up, cut red tape. That's made it much easier. So one is kind of the facilitation uh, role that we play. The second thing we do is um, we help the network. You know, we have uh, uh, offices in Riyadh and in Abu Dhabi. Um, and those offices primary function is to, is to kind of network with the local ecosystem, you know, um, and introduce them and to kind of almost match, make them with, with partners in the region. So, so not only helping them drop a business plan, but we help them acquire licenses. Um, we find advisors, we help them find people in, in many cases. Um, so, so, so we play that networking role, um, and then the other thing we do in the region is, together with the management of the companies, we obviously monitor the progress of these initiatives um, and, and we help uh, preempt them and, and, and uh, manage any, any issues that arise. So all of that is really to, to, to deliver on one of the key tenants that we set out at the beginning of the Vision Fund's life, which was, look, the Vision Fund is the primary means by which PIF and Mubadala can access you know, global cutting edge tech companies. But at the same time as a byproduct of that, we're able to bring some of that technology back into the region. So it's early days, Noor, but um, you know I'm optimistic given, given how many companies have started to work with us and the excitement that they've generated and the, and more importantly, the reception that they've gotten from you know the governments of Saudi Arabia and, and Abu Dhabi that that, that will maybe make a lot of ground and um, have a lot of success there.
1: Well, it's very exciting. And as I think through as well, you know, the knowledge transfer that happens as these companies start to come into the region and then regional founders start to learn from them or you know, there's a lot of talent that gets swapped over over time. So it really enables the entire ecosystem. It's a rising tide. It kind of lifts all boats along with it. Um, so that's very exciting for the region, the regional founders, the regional entrepreneurs as well. Um, what specific verticals are exciting, regional or global? So as you look mm-hmm. forward, um, you know what are you really excited about where do you think there are changes that are happening today that will affect the way that we live 10 years from now or just two to five years from now um, so so what are those industries and verticals that you think are game changers today
2: well there's a lot i mean uh, in in the vision fund we focus on multiple sectors more right and and I think what this crisis has shown is that it's emphasized some particular sectors, right? Clearly there's some sectors that have suffered as a result of this crisis, but, um, you know, the, the the key ones that have kind of really been highlighted in this crisis is, for example, health tech, as you mentioned, you know, and what's really exciting is if you look at the advances in in computational biology and genomics, uh, that that is going to be huge because that's going to, I mean, just in terms of, the crisis itself, the speed at which we've managed to to, um, find these vaccines and to deploy them is largely because of computational biology and genomics, right? Being able to to understand the human immune response um, and being able to model it um, relies on a huge amount of computation. It relies on machine learning, and that's only been possible right now. So... I think we're at the advent right now where we're going to make huge strides in drug discovery, um, in treating, um, in in countering pathogens, um, and and that's going to be a a huge area. Um, If you look at companies we have in our portfolio like Garden Health or Relay Therapeutics, you know, all of those are geared towards understanding uh, genomic sequencing and being able to model um uh and use computational biology to be able to speed up either diagnosis or um speed up uh uh, treatments and and therapy um so so i think that's an area that's going to be tremendous and we're just at the advent of 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 those um companies doing really well so that we're very excited about but equally um we have companies like in um EdTech, you know, um, I have teenage kids. Unfortunately, they've had to kind of rely on, on, on online learning, um, which is obviously not ideal. Um, but what we're discovering is that ed tech, with the technologies uh, in being able to kind of connect and supply and the ability to kind of process what works, what doesn't work. Um, that's, that, that's uncovering an entirely new area of, of learning. So I don't think it'll kind of replace the way people learn necessarily, but certainly um, it can supplant and enhance the way people learn, right? Um, so if you look at, if you, look at um, you know, uh, uh, tutoring, for example, uh, or, or after school lessons or whatever it is, if you can do it online, it saves time on commuting, it reduces the costs. So again, it democratizes the way people can access these um, so I think there's going to be a lot of advents made in areas that we're just starting to see opening up because of this crisis and because so many people have kind of shifted from offline to online. right?
1: So, so let me ask you one question on each of those industries and maybe, you know, Sada's view, not the house view, if you like. Um, so on digital health. Do we use that data? Like, do clinics become the new data aggregators and the new data centers, right? Um, and do we use that genomics data to move towards a world where prevention is much more doable? And really, we can we take that data and harness it so that based on your genomic sequencing, you can be given certain preventative measures until mm-hmm. the healthier life. That's one. And and what are you doing? A soft bank or a salad to to enable that? And then on the EdTech side. Do we move from a knowledge-based um, education system to a skill-based education system?
2: Hmm. Okay, well, let's start with, 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 with ed tech. Um, it's hard to say, right, which way education is gonna go. I think people are really, uh, let's, first of all, let's hope that this crisis doesn't last too long. But when people do go back to classrooms, I think there are gonna be some fundamental questions that's gonna be asked about you know, um, how and what education should be delivered. Um, and, and my view is that it's going to be a combination of in-class kind of learning and out of class online learning a little bit about a little bit the way I think the the future of work's going to go, right? I think when it comes to work, uh, historically everybody commuted into work, you know, and, and, and that was obviously a very inefficient uh, way of, of people trying to get together. Now we can digitize that, people can get over um, you know, Zoom and other, other ways, I think. So as a result, I think at work, people are gonna use a combination of, of you know, being in person in the office and being able to communicate the way you and I are communicating more, right? uh I myself, I used to have to you know fly across continents for one or two meetings. Not only is that um, you know bad for the environment, but it's also very inefficient use of one's time, right? So I think we're gonna probably find a combination um, of kind of online and offline when it comes to things like education as well. Um, and and with regards to your question, whether whether it's going to be knowledge based or people focusing more on vocations or tech, technology, that's that's remains to be seen. But certainly we're seeing a number of our portfolio companies focusing on on the latter and focusing mm-hmm. on on allowing people to improve their skill set or their or, or to be able to kind of upscale their skills through through online classes. We're seeing that as well.
1: So SPACs seem to be massively trending. They are not something new. They've been around for a long time, but they seem to have the heat up, heat turned up under them. Um, what are your thoughts on SPACs? Is it a fad? Is it something that will continue on this accelerated curve? Um, positive, negative? You know, what what are your views?
2: Well, first, I think, nor you know, SPACs or the the proliferation of SPACs is is is. I think just a reflection of the amount of liquidity that's out there, right? So it's just another form of another pool of liquidity that's out there. Um, you know, I won't delve into the reasons as to why we have that much liquidity, but clearly, you know, the, the government policies have all been towards easing the lowering of interest rates it means there's a lot of money seeking a home. That that is natural. Um, for us, however, you know, SPACs is a means to to expand our reach, right? Um, If you look at kind of the different stages of companies we invest in, there is a segment of companies that are prone or appropriate for SPACs. And those are ones that kind of sit between kind of late stage and IPO, right? So that around the pre-IPO stage of companies. Um, So for, for us, our involvement in SPACs is simply to be able to, to broaden and to be able to target companies that specifically seek to IPO via SPAC. Um, And and I think we're well positioned for that uh, just because of the network we've created and our ability to to source deals, right? The fact that we're able to to deploy so much capital um, in so many companies is a reflection of our network that we're able to see a lot of opportunities. So it's not that we we rely on the liquidity coming into SPACs for us to, to, to invest. We have sufficient capital, right? Um, capital is not the issue for us. It's really our ability to, to target companies um, that are kind of prone or appropriate for SPACs. That's been kind of the philosophy behind that. Um,
1: Great, thank yeah. you.
2: So, so it's really a, 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 a if you like a bridge between our private and public investing stages, yeah. simply
1: put. It is. I, and I think that's exactly what it is. It's, it's a bridge, right? And I think as one market boomed and the other kind of stalled for a little while, um, you know, the question was, how do we bridge this? So before we wrap up, I have one final question for you. Um, so if you were not doing what you are doing now, if you weren't in this current role and position, what company might you start? What challenge might you address? What problem might you try to solve in this world?
2: Yeah, I, having worked in, in in the Vision Fund for the last four years, Nor, you know, I, I've I'd like to be able to continue to make an impact, right? And insofar as making an impact, um, right now, obviously the world is is grappling with this with this crisis, and hopefully the world comes together to to solve it. Certainly, the initial phases of um, vaccines uh, seems to be kind of tempering the the spread of this. Disease and um, and hopefully we get to a place where we we can manage um, this crisis uh, and that's not too far out in the distant future. But once once that is contained and managed, I think the world is also facing another looming problem, which is you know uh, the environment and um, the way uh, you know or we've been damaging the environment through greenhouse gases and and, and pollution. Um, so one, one area which excites me a lot is the advance in, in clean tech. Uh, we're at a confluence right now where panel te- solar panel technology, battery technology, other forms of storage that's all you know coming together We have the confluence of that uh, a lot of country uh, countries are now uh, forcing people to give up combustion engines for their cars, switching to EVs I think that's a very exciting area because, ultimately, um, you know we have to we have to change something to be able to manage this before it becomes uh, a crisis that becomes much more difficult to control. Um, You know the world is uh, only going up in terms of population, in terms of spending power, so consumption generally is going to keep rising. So unless we find more efficient use. You, uh, more efficient means to to fuel that consumption. I don't think the world is headed to a good place. So so, clean tech is a very exciting area um, right now, and and that's probably an area that I would like to to get involved in, um, and and certainly that would be very impactful.
1: Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Sally, for, for those insights. And thank you so much for your time and for answering all these questions. John, thank you for having us. And
0: thank, thank you, you so much for doing this. Uh, you know, we enjoyed, like I said, getting to know you guys as part of the SALT Abu Dhabi conference and wish we could have been back in Dubai and in Abu Dhabi uh, recently. But obviously, the, the COVID pandemic has prevented us from traveling. But we look forward to hosting uh, conferences again in the region in the UAE, in uh, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, and other places that uh, Saleh and Noor, you guys are both very active. So we look forward to seeing you in person soon. Uh, but until then, we'll have to make do over Zoom. And it's been a pleasure to catch up with you guys here today. Thank
2: Thanks you. so much for having me. Thank you, Noor. Thank you, John. Thank you.
0: Thank you, And thank you, everybody who tuned in to today's SALT Talk with Saleh Rome of SoftBank, uh, hosted by Noor Swade of Global Ventures, Just a reminder, if you missed any part of this talk or any of our previous SALT Talks, you can access our entire archive of SALT Talks as well as sign up for future talks in order to attend them live on our website at salt.org backslash talks. You can also access all of our episodes on our YouTube channel, which is titled Salt Tube with a fast-growing subscribership. Uh, Please also follow us on social media. We're most active on Twitter at Salt Conference, but we're also on Facebook, we're on Instagram, and we're on LinkedIn as well and growing our activity on all of those channels. Please spread the word about SALT Talks. We love growing our community, which we've been able to do uh, during the COVID pandemic uh, through the use of things like teleconferencing, uh, which we use for these SALT Talks. But please tell your friends, if you find these talks interesting, uh, please tell them about uh, SALT Talks and share our YouTube channel or our website with them. But on behalf of the entire SALT team, this is John Darcy signing off from SALT Talks for today. See you back here again soon.